So I started looking at trying to do 1% better a day. So I kind of looked at it as climbing a ladder. So instead of trying to jump up four or five rings, and sure, you might get up the ladder faster, but if you slip, you're going to fall harder and faster rather than taking one or two rings at a time, getting comfortable with that and slowly making your way up because there's, it's, it's not a fast recovery process. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome to my podcast. It's really great to have you here and I have a very special conversation to share today. But before I get into that, I'd first like to give a shout out to my show sponsor, Warlock Golf. So as the golf season winds down, I've been reflecting on my performance this year and I'll admit I didn't improve my golf game as much as I was hoping to. But even if my golf game is not quite on par yet, at least I know that when I play with accessories from warlockgolf.com, my style is... Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just taking your first swings, Warlock Golf wants to help make each round more memorable than the last. Visit warlockgolf.com and use discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. All right, so my guest today is actually one of my closest friends. His name is Corey Thatcher, and he has a very powerful story to share. Corey shares his experience battling a severe eating disorder, how he became sick, why he finally accepted treatment, and the tools and strategies he used and is still using in his recovery. What's truly incredible, though, is that not only did Corey pull himself out of the depths of his illness, but he fell in love with obstacle course racing and has actually represented Canada at the Obstacle Course Racing World Championships twice. He's truly incredible. Currently, Corey is studying health and physical education and psychology at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Canada. He's bringing together his passion for physical literacy and fascination with psychology to promote a holistic and non-pharmaceutical approach to mental health treatment. We really discussed so much in this episode, including factors that contribute to eating disorders, what treatment actually looks like, electroconvulsive therapy, obstacle course race training, the importance of identity, accepting relapse, how to help someone struggling, and so much more. I also share a little bit about my own experience with disordered eating, which is something I don't discuss very often. Um, But just a quick warning, we do mention a few specific numbers in regards to weight and calories, so please recognize if this may be triggering for you. Corey inspires me every day, and I truly hope this conversation inspires some of you. This is for anyone who might be struggling with an eating disorder, or for someone who knows someone struggling, or for anyone who just wants to understand what goes on beneath the surface of this illness. So please enjoy my conversation with Corey Thatcher. And when you are finished, it would be amazing if you could share with at least one other person who might benefit from listening. Thank you and enjoy our conversation. Hello, Corey. Welcome so much to the Plant Field podcast. I am beyond excited to have you here. I'm so happy and privileged to be here, Cassie. Yeah, it's going to be good. We have a lot of um, interesting interesting things we want to cover today. So hopefully can, we can uh, stay on topic. Um, but I thought a great place to start talking would be to just um, introduce you a little bit to the audience and talk about how we first met. So I remember meeting you in Anatomy Lab at uh, our first year of university. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Um, and I remember remember we were both sitting there and 
shocked that we had to remember all the bony prominences of the skeleton and just in awe of the human body, basically. Yeah, and there was the uh, like the arm and the leg, and we were taking off each muscle, and it was putting the puzzle back together, which we didn't really know how to do, but it was an early morning lab, and it was yeah, it was a really great opportunity to learn. Yeah, it was good. We've come a long, we've come a long way since then. Yeah, um, and then we kind of just became friends from there, and just I think bonded over our love of just fitness and running and health and the human body, basically. Yeah, and yeah, I definitely think that's that was a common trend that we could we could touch on, and not a lot of other people were at the same level of passion. I think that we had for living a more holistic, plant-based, vegetarian, uh, whichever diet or lifestyle you subscribe to, whichever, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we both started really, before I met you, I did not identify as a runner. I wasn't a person that went to the gym every morning. And I think our friendship kind of evolved as our interest in health and fitness evolved as well. So I remember we were both working um, part-time at the front desk of this little like 24 hour gym. And, um, we would just like talk for hours about health benefits of like sweet potato or bananas or talk about like the runs we had planned. And, um, we were both getting pretty serious into running. I remember at the time. Yeah. There were some really unique vitamins, minerals, supplements that we would kind of be able to nerd out on. And it was kind of cool because I don't have anyone else in my life really or did at that point that I could actually be honest and talk to people about this. Yeah. And I think that's something unique about our friendship is we've been very, we can talk about anything. And that's one of the things I like about you is like talk about everything from like the books we're reading to um, (laughs) you send me studies all the time. I think there was one study you sent me. I might have to put it in the show notes. It was um, the... Uh, what was it? Was it the VO2 of crocodiles? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I was like, how did you even find this? <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to get on some rabbit holes down in the uh, in the internet. Yeah, it was crazy. But um, anyway, to pull it back to um, where we were going with this is um, you and I both started, I guess, um, how it started was we both started tracking calories and we both started running a lot. And... Um, I guess that would be my first question for you is when did you first start paying attention to calories and when did like the calories of your food actually start to matter to you? So calories never really, they never really affected me. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't really think a lot about my food or my choices and stuff like that. And when I started to pay attention, it became more or less unhealthy is when uh, I started to completely tie my identity around certain diet and lifestyle choices and individuals that I would follow on social media that ultimately I built my identity around this whole holistic and living very clean lifestyle. And I guess like I really started getting into it when I started a vegetarian, a vegetarianism lifestyle and I definitely got into it a lot, like very premature and in my understanding and also my maturity level. Um, I definitely did it for the wrong reasons. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit more because as you know, this is a um, very uh, plant predominant podcast, I guess, like very passionate about plant-based living and um, plant predominant diets. And I think that's something that not enough people bring up is 
you need to have the proper intentions behind why are you going vegetarian? And from an outside perspective, a lot of people associate vegetarian diets with a step in the right direction for health. And, but when you say you started a vegetarian diet for the wrong reasons, what were those reasons for you? There was, uh, it was kind of a two-part thing for me when I started. I originally started it with the whole intention that I was going to become healthy and lose weight and it was going to be for performance, but there was always this underlying kind of message that was going on in my head that it was a socially acceptable way of restricting my diet and that I would be able to facilitate my quote unquote dietary needs to avoid certain social situations where I didn't have to be around other people. And from there, I moved into more unhealthy social trends, social media, and different influencers' ideas. And yeah, it was very, it was hard because I didn't have the proper knowledge going into it, but I had these underlying intentions. Yeah, maybe for context, um, do you remember how many years ago this was that we were working at that gym? I'm just like, because we were both still in our undergrad. Yeah, I think it was about nine years ago. Okay. That's- so I guess like social media wasn't even at the stage it is today. And to hear you say that these influencers and these people on social media had almost a very negative role in how you identified or how you thought about health and fitness, it just kind of scares me to think about like the power of what they have today when social media is everything. Yeah, it's there's a lot of things that are out there. And the thing with, with social media is anyone can have any sort of credentials depending on what they think is acceptable. Yeah, and it's it's almost like, I think you t- said this once, it's like a six-pack is not a degree, a six-pack is not a certification. No, exactly. And it's, yeah, you don't go to a to a class on six-pack building. And it's it was something that I actually... I fantasized about and looked at in people as qualified professionals because they could achieve this with their body. So I guess, okay, so at this point that you're starting to pay more attention and starting to identify more with, I guess, body weight and body image, is that fair? Yeah, so a little bit of context behind that is I grew up without being too physical and uh, I played lacrosse for a little while and basketball, but Uh, It was not really at a competitive level. It was just kind of interact and be around my friends and stuff. But um, when I got more attention from the opposite sex um, and started being told that I was accepted more and I was okay is when I was dieting and taking exercise to an extreme. Um, I have more or less a type A personality where if I'm going to go into something, I can go into it and it can get out of control very quick. Yeah. So, all right. So you started identifying more with health, with fitness. Um, and at this time you started um, running a lot more too. Um, Cause I, re- I remember we started running together and I started, I was, my story, my story is a whole other story, but I started doing uh, some longer distances and we actually ran our first half marathon together remember that was a highlight and that was a a positive experience. But I think from there, it almost, it, it became an unhealthy thing. And, um, like, I guess how did exercise and running fit into this equation? 
So from there, like it was one of my first positive experiences with exercise is like with Cassie, I was able to bond with a friend over something that is actually healthy. And I don't think at that point I was fully in the depths of everything that was going on. Um, But from there, I tied my identity to this external idea of being this fitness person that was a runner. And I didn't really ever have a solid identity or personal narrative or anything other than that I was a runner. Yeah, it becomes a very, it's almost, it's it's a dangerous, dangerous game to play because then as soon as you're a runner and then all of a sudden until you can't be, and then it's, it can be devastating. Yeah, it, it definitely, when you tie your identity to an external source and it's removed or forced to be taken away at certain points, you're left in an extremely big identity crisis and just feel lost, helpless. So just, I guess, building on this a little bit more, if you could say something to yourself like that um, person like eight, nine years ago, when your identity was running and was your body weight and your body image, what would you, I guess, what advice would you have for that person right now about identity? It's pretty hard to look back at that point because it would almost just be saying something that would fall on deaf ears. Um, I was so completely enticed with what I was and what I looked like to others. And so being able to, say, push through different runs and getting up at 4 a.m. to go for these minus 30 degrees Celsius runs with icicles on my face and people like worshiping that on Instagram and saying, oh, you're so, so disciplined and stuff. I, I would definitely say don't don't exercise for other people, but really look at your intentions behind what you're doing and not having the intentions to please others or a good Instagram post, but to actually just do it because you really like it. That's very good advice. Um, I'd like to jump back a little bit and just touch on the tracking apps a little bit more, because I think this was a pretty big, um, player in, um, everything that happened. Um, at the time we were both, I think using my fitness pal, I'll name it. Um, and it got just speaking from my own personal experience first, it became a dangerous, like, I guess like a rabbit hole I fell into and I couldn't eat anything without tracking it. I was weighing out um, my carrots. I was measuring everything. I was obsessed with tracking every single calorie and it became all consuming and it starts to occupy your mind and it starts to become, at least for me anyway, it became a bit of a game where I needed to make sure I was under my calories every day. And I needed, like, I loved seeing the green numbers of how many calories left I could eat. And if I had the more, the better that I had at the end of the day. And that was my experience with it. And it, it became a, a very dangerous thing. And um, I would love to hear your experience with it and how you feel that that played a role in um, your story. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to it becoming a rabbit hole. It literally became my best friend. I would not go more than probably 20 minutes or half an hour, even without planning a meal and then looking at different ways where I could decrease the calories and get those green numbers like you were talking. That's crazy. Can you can you give like an example of that? Yeah. So for example, I would um, I would sit and I would say have sweet potatoes and um, some tofu. And then I would realize that sweet potatoes were a little bit, a little bit more caloric dense. So I would change it down to some sort of like 
spaghetti squash and I would take half the tofu off and that would just that would light up that green light and that green light's a go. So that's what I that's what I was thriving on. It's crazy how actually starving yourself can almost be a reward of pleasure or a, a bit of a, a reward. Like for you, was it was it a control um feeling you were going for? Yeah, it, it for sure was definitely definitely control. And I think going back a little bit to with different influencers and ideas in the fitness and health industry, fasting and intermittent fasting was getting a lot of attention at that time. And I found that as a really, really good excuse for me to basically starve myself. And that defeats the whole purpose of actual fasting. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary how there's all these different, all these different camps. And if you it's like you said before, it's a socially accepted way to restrict food further. And um, I would like to just bring up like one more example, because this one just really stands out in my behavior of how, how, how much the the calorie tracking can take control of your mind and like um, just control your life is how um, can you share um, how you felt about the cat? Like, okay. Um, I remember I went to your place one time to visit and this was before you kind of stopped having visitors and we had made tea and you had some flavored David's tea in the cupboard. And I remember that there was a certain kind that I think there was like on the packaging, it listed five calories per cup of tea. And I remember, I think it was like some birthday cake, like flavored tea or something. And I remember you were not okay having the tea because of these calories. Yeah, it was it was a mixture between my like false identity of what was healthy at that time. And also that five calories was terrifying to me. And it it just went downhill from there. Um, for a little bit of more context, I was admitted for an eating disorder uh, back in 2001. And I had an inpatient stay and then was in multiple outpatient stays and had a couple relapses within the time. And that's part of the recovery, I guess, but a lot of it's often overlooked. Yeah, I think a lot of people from the outside looking in, they don't realize exactly what's going on in the mind of someone with an eating disorder and how something can just start out so simple as just like wanting to be healthier, just like simply tracking your exercise. And it can become so much more than that. And um, I would love to know, like, at what point was it clear that like you had a serious problem? So before you were admitted or anything like that, like, was there a time where you were like, okay, this is not healthy. I'm on a downward trajectory. Um, I guess like some people call it a rock bottom was, did you have this moment? Oh, I, I, I definitely had a rock bottom. Um, it was, it was when a scale and my fitness power kind of literally, they were a relationship for me. I would be weighing myself over double digits a day, uh, 10, 12, times and I would be taking pictures where if I was able to see more defined parts of my body that a healthy weighted individual shouldn't be able to see. Um, also when I was so cold where I would have to sit in a bath for multiple hours just to try and warm up, um, I was always always tired as well and I was told by f- some professionals just to uh, have a little bit more coffee or, and at that point I was even taking pre-workout as a way to get through my day. And 
at that point, I, um, I was under a hundred pounds. I was about 90, 95 to 98 pounds and I'm six foot male. And my resting heart rate was approximately 30. And at night I would go under 30. So I was admitted into a cardiac unit and then I was on heart telemetry for uh, about six months. So every night my heart rate would be monitored. And if it went to a certain point, it would alarm doctors. Um, and I was in multiple, multiple organ failure. I had liver enzymes that were going all over the place. And, and it, it yeah, just, it wasn't, it wasn't a very good time. Um, yeah. That's thank you for sharing all that. And it's insane. The body's literally starts eating itself. Like you were, um, hopefully this isn't too triggering for anyone, but do you remember the lowest calorie count? Like when you were admitted, like what were you keeping yourself to per day? Um, I was probably roughly around two to 300, uh, calories a day and still at that time, really having a false idea of what working out was. Cause looking back at it, it really, it really wasn't working out. It was just a, almost a fashion, sh- fashion shoot of different pictures of me just seeing more and more things. And it's kind of hard within this field is because if certain people hear this, it's going to be, Oh, I'm not sick enough, or I didn't get down to a low enough body weight. But when people think about this, it's, if you're even having to think about it, there is a point where your mind's going to, it's going to try and do that as a competition for some people. And it's not a, it's not a competition that's fun. Not at all. Um, I was wondering, do you even remember clearly like this time in your life? Like, can you think back or I feel when you're, you're not eating, like you're, you're starving yourself and you can't be thinking clearly at this point. Yeah, no, there, there's, there's multiple, multiple experiences and times where I would just see these pictures and I don't remember it and I don't remember conversations. Um, and also that goes back to tracking too, as I was so preoccupied with that, I, I wasn't able to have a relationship with anyone else. And if anyone else came between me and my app, I got very defensive and I was, I was terrified if I couldn't check my app. It's, it's crazy. It truly takes over the mind. It takes over, like, was there anything else that you cared about in this time or was it seriously just like exercise and food? It was, it was a hundred percent exercise food. Um, it went from a way of being comfortable within my own skin or an attempt to be, um, just, just to appear obsession with the idea of eating less, doing more with the false intention or ideas that I was still accomplishing things, but it was not at the same level. And it's terrifying going back to the idea that I was even driving at this time and some places I would get to, and I wouldn't remember two or three hours. And I'm just like, how many people did I, did I put in, in jeopardy? And that, that was part of what led me to actually getting some treatment. Wow. It's, it's scary. You had to drop so deep into this disorder before, yeah, you were able to get treatment. And that brings me back to something I wanted to ask about is, um, why didn't your family doctor notice or say anything early, like earlier? Like surely you were seeing a family doctor during this time. Yeah, I was, I was really ambivalent to go to a lot of doctors because I was afraid that they would actually kind of see my dark secrets. Um, cause deep down, I, I really, I knew that there was something wrong, but I got a lot of satisfaction from that. Just thinking that I could get myself sicker. And so I told my doctor that I was a runner and his, his idea was that I was a runner. And so typically as you build up your cardiac system, your heart rate lowers a little bit because it's stronger. Um, 
And so I just told him that I, I was training for long runs and he said he was okay with that. And I just said, I wanted to be a little bit thinner to run. And ultimately he took that as he, it almost gave me a green light to keep losing weight when he just said, just keep doing what you're doing. Because if you're an athlete, you're running, that's, that's okay. That's as someone in medical school, I, it hurts me to think that a doctor would just let you walk out of the room like that when your heart rate's so low and you're, um, clearly something was going on deeper than running, or I guess it's obvious to me now. And he probably had the best intentions, but I, I'm kind of wondering if perhaps he didn't suspect anything because you're not the typical, um, patient that you'd normally see diagnosed with something like anorexia, like not to be sexist here, but you're, you're a male, you're strong, you work out. It's not normally you almost think like, you're not the type of person that would want to get skinnier and skinnier. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've definitely been told that it's a, like a skinny white girl problem or Caucasian just problem, but it's, it's, and a lot of the treatment I, I've been seeing like the only male, um, in this and that's sought out treatment, which it's, it's hard to get past the idea that it's not okay to get this treatment because there's no satisfaction in life that comes from this. That's long lasting. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really hard to, at some points hear different things that have happened to girls within treatment or different things from guys. And so, yeah, so just, just being a male in certain environments like this, there's a lot of a lack of communication and knowledge actually, um, where you're fit into a either like a cookie cutter, pun intended, um, or just just a mold that they've had from previous people. I think it's a lack of data, um, but it's it's basically just making you fit into this idea that they have what you should be or your your recovery path. Yeah. And I think that's very, um, one of the reasons I was so, um, excited to have you on the podcast is because I feel you have a message and a perspective to share that isn't as it's not as readily shared, um, around social media and things like that. Like there's a lot of women talking about eating, eating disorder recovery, but there's not a lot of males. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's hard parts to see too, because some people, uh, they glamorize it for the social media attention where they have certain, certain traits where they show them off and people, they really respect these and they don't really understand the underlying physiology of what's actually going through these people's minds. And it's, it's really hard to see, um, for people who do actually understand what it's like to suffer. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your time there. Like, was it a positive experience? Um, how did you find the staff? Did you find the nurses knowledgeable? Like overall, what was, what can you share from that, your time there? So to start off, I am very grateful that I was able to be in their presence because I, they saved my life 100%. Um, they were very general knowledge nurses um, and they they weren't very specialized within an eating disorder population and only certain nurses too would be able to uh, say deal with us or our kind of people. Um, and it's hard to identify with that still because it really puts a label on who we should or shouldn't be. Um, but the, it was a pretty negative experience of being packed in a tiny little room on this floor where there was a lot of just 
it was a general health uh, unit, so there was a lot of dementia patients. And so even having different interactions with them and a lot of comments um, such as, oh, like you're really tiny or you should do this, 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 and you just need to eat. It, it was almost a way of reinforcing how well you had done because you're in a hospital and people are still saying this, but it's, it's still, it's, it's really hard within this population because a lot of it can become a game and a competition to see who can eat less calories, who can be skinnier, who can show more certain things. It's, it's a really dangerous, um, dangerous population to just the satisfaction that comes from really self-masticating behaviors such as restricting, uh, binging, purging, uh, different behaviors like that. So being crammed into a little room with four or five other people who are also struggling, really um, the lack of communication uh, skills that we also experienced and were taught was very negative. Um, I don't think there's enough awareness within this industry at all for this mental health. And there really weren't a lot of other like, well, there were no other options for treatment. You said you were lucky enough to get a bed. So it's it's really, it's a call for there needs to be more resources and there needs to be more knowledgeable healthcare professionals that understand um, the best way to reach, like, a population such as, like, what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. The, the treatment options are very limited. Um, it's, there's five beds in a city of over a million people. And that's the inpatient. And then there's an outpatient where there's 12 opportunities. Um, the wait list is extremely long. Um, and it's basically a full-time job just to try to get into one of those to get treatment. So if you have to go to such deep lengths to get treatment, it's it's so unfortunate because no one should have to go that deep in order just to be heard. Yeah, it's a very, it's a difficult, something that there's not... There's not a single solution to it for sure. So I'm curious about some of the, like what, obviously they were trying to make you gain weight. They were trying to stabilize, stabilize your health, um, make you gain weight. They were providing you with regular meals. I remember I visited you once in the inpatient unit in the hospital and um, there were nurses observing your every moment, um, making sure that you didn't do extra, you weren't <laughs> sneaking squats and burning more calories than you, you had to. And um what really struck me is that there was no emphasis on uh, food was food. There were there was no such thing as good food or bad food. Um, they encouraged you to eat desserts. They encouraged you to eat ice cream, which is all great. You needed to gain weight. Like you were on the verge of organ failure. But I'm just, I've always found it a very, just food is not food to me. Like there are healthier foods than others. And I'm just wondering how you think about their approach and if, it was appropriate and if you find it helped you or if you struggled eating some of the foods that they wanted you to eat? Yeah, the the whole emphasis on uh, eating kind of more clean and really vegetarian, vegan, plant-based <laughs> didn't even exist. It wasn't in the vocabulary and was strictly seen as a behavior, um, as a way to restrict. There had a general number of say grains or proteins that you'd have to make and you were given one or two options that were the same for everyone in the hospital so the healthcare and everything system it it is quite limited but there was foods that would be healthy to some people and wouldn't to others and we were we were forced to eat those um 
which like you said, is it was a necessity at the time. And it was just seen as other and dysfunctional or eating and dysfunctional behavior. If we actually wanted to look at what healthy food was, and we weren't really told that anything other than what a hospital diet was, was acceptable. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm okay. So I'm curious, obviously you, uh, got out of there and, um, you're in, I guess, as if we can call it that you're in recovery right now, you're doing great and we're going to get into all that. But, um, what are some of the techniques and some of the strategies that you really, um, utilized in your own recovery to not only, um, stabilize enough that you could, um, move into outpatient, but that helped you, um, maintain a life, um, outside of the program. So one thing that I really was trying to do is I was trying to take these monumental steps and have these outrageous goals where I would just be cured in one day and this would all be done. And so I started looking at trying to do 1% better a day. So I kind of looked at it as climbing a ladder. So instead of trying to jump up four or five rings and sure, you might get up the ladder faster, but if you slip, you're going to fall harder and faster rather than taking one or two rings at a time, getting comfortable with that and slowly making your way up because there's it's, it's not a fast recovery process in this. Um, also writing things down. Um, I've really learned how to journal and it, it comes and goes um, just depending on moods and times of my life, but it is definitely something where you're able to see and look at where your thoughts are coming from and possibly where they're going in a direction. Yeah. So it's, so you're, so when you journal, so you're writing down like your feelings in the moment, I guess, like it's, is this a way of, um, because I've heard like when you have the desire to restrict, you have to look at like, okay, why ultimately are you feeling that? So is it a way of like kind of exploring those inner emotions or like it's, it's a form of self-reflection, I guess. Yeah. It's in, in the moment it's literally the last thing I would think about. Um, so it's more of after, um, say, a desire to engage in a behavior. And um, it's, yeah, there's, it's definitely something that's out of the heat of the moment. So in the moment, one of the greatest things is building a support. So I've been blessed with an amazing family and friends that have supported me and been there for me. And it's a thing about the support is you don't want people that talk at you. They want people that will talk with you. And so if you have people that talk with you, it's not going to feel like a lecture or you're doing something wrong. It's, it's more or less just like, okay, let's try and talk about this. It, it's really hard to try and explain to people that this is what you're feeling right now because I still don't understand to this day or have really any sort of logic of how this manifested. Um, but if you're more comfortable and you feel that you're going to have a little more consistency with going to your supports, uh, consistency is, consistency is king. And the longer and more times you actually reach out to them, even though it's uncomfortable and however loud your head gets in the moment about you actually not engaging in behaviors and how much of a failure you are because you didn't do this, it's, it gets, it gets easier, um, but it's, it's still getting to a point where it, there is still occasional slip-ups and stuff like that, but it's not letting those fully get you down and actually being honest with your supports 
and looking at what possibly could have happened or what you could have done different. So setting yourself up with some sort of emergency plan almost. It's, uh, I know it sounds a little extreme, but um, putting barriers, say, between if you're having binging and purging um, desires or urges to, to say, like, put it at, say, the back of the fridge or freeze things or put things that are definitely an obstacle. So you have to take that momentary break to just just think about what you're doing and hopefully like you can have a moment or two of clarity because after everything there's there's guilt there's anger there's a sense of failure and and going back to a little bit with the uh the impatience day is also with my identity I really tied it to veganism or vegetarian and that was completely stripped away too so not only was I getting in trouble for laying with expending too many calories and some some sense. I don't really understand that, <laughs> but, uh, I had my running identity, my working out identity and my vegetarian lifestyle just ripped away from me. So I was sitting there basically just in organ failure, being forced as food and not having any proper help. Just, it was, it was just a place just to get some calories in me and their best attempt at giving me what common dialectical behavioral uh, techniques or cognitive behavioral techniques are, um, which are the two prominent psychological processes that are used um, that I've noticed in my treatment. And anything that goes away from those really isn't, isn't practiced or understood. I've, thank you. That, that was great. Thank you yeah. for sharing all that. I have a couple, couple questions to dig into there. I guess the first one I'm going to ask is, um, can you speak to the importance, just going off the um, cognitive behavioral therapy that you talked about? So speak to the importance of actually having a psychologist or a, someone that understands um, the the role of the mind in this eating disorder. Um, can you under, can you speak to the importance of like that multi um, uh, multidisciplinary team in your care? Yeah. So like specifically, I was meeting with a dietitian, psychiatrist, and psychologist, as well as um, a primary physician. Um, so if it was a psychiatrist appointment, primarily it would be giving me more uh, anxiolytics or antipsychotic meds, or uh, basically it was just a way of just adding medications into me. Um, the uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy approach uh, really looked at the how the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors interacted with one another as in a triangle approach where your thoughts would lead to a feelings, which would lead to a behavior, or your behavior would lead to a thought, which would go to an action. And so that was that's kind of the main way that it looks like people try to understand this unknowable phenomenon <laughs> that goes on in the mind. And it's it's still, yeah, it's incredible to to try and fathom this. And there's there's a level of where you can have a lot, you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can learn statistics and you can know numbers and research studies. And so it's, it's having the knowledge, but you don't have the self-knowledge. So you have all the numbers, but you don't know anything about yourself to where and how to apply that. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm, 
excited as more research comes out on this and the more we learn, the more we can hopefully help um, people going through similar struggles. Um, Getting back to some of the techniques that you kind of talked about that you helped in your recovery. I'm curious because I'm just going to, again, share some of my own experience here is I, I did talk to a therapist one time and I didn't go back to her and we just didn't vibe. (laughs) That's fine. Um, But she was all about, you need to challenge yourself. You need to just, you need to challenge yourself. You need to put yourself in an uncomfortable position and, and just know that you can get through it. And it's, it's sound advice and it's valuable and it's useful. And ultimately I ended up having, like, that's what I ended up having to do. Like you almost have to force yourself to eat something or eat at a time or combine some certain food that isn't safe. And then almost prove to yourself that like, it's okay. I didn't gain five pounds. Like I'm okay. I can move on and new days, a new day. I'm, and it was, it was a long journey for me. And I'm just curious what your approach was in this way. Like, did you approach the day being like, okay, okay, I'm going to challenge myself in this way. I'm going to um, eat an extra serving at breakfast. I'm going to combine these foods. Like what was your approach and how did you slowly expand the foods that were okay to eat and the um, times you could eat and et cetera, if you understand my question? Yeah, for sure. So when I left uh, different treatment facilities, um, I did go back to my vegetarian lifestyle and that's what I ultimately wanted. And I always would tell the people in there that that's what I was going to go back to. And, uh, for a long time, I was actually very successful with it and I had really good training and I tied my identity again to going back to exercising, which led me to obstacle course racing. And, um, yeah, so it was just a technique of just having the kind of trying to push through things and do the mechanical eating as they call it in the treatment facilities. And it's, just going through the motions basically and just knowing that that's what you need to get in for the day. And it's, yeah, it's interesting because you wouldn't tell a diabetes person not to take insulin and that's like the proper medication for them. And that's what they need. And that's what they need in the moment. But someone who struggles with eating, you're, you're forced to take it four to five times a day, six, even depending where your treatment is. And so it's, it's, it's weird looking at food as medicine, but at the end of the day, that's exactly what it is. It, it allows you to live and it's 100% necessary. So that's, that's interesting. So it's almost, it's reframing how you think about it. Um, I like that term mechanical, what was it? Mechanical eating? Yeah. Yeah. So it reminds me of the, um, the kind of the idea that like action changes thoughts, changes feelings. And if you just, even if you're not feeling or thinking, or you don't want to do something, if you, if you complete the action, then over time, slowly, like your, your feelings and your thoughts can change as well. Is that kind of similar? Yeah. So the idea behind the mechanical eating is that it's going to break the rigidity and the, the ideas of how constructed in your mind that certain foods are good or bad by just constantly doing it and say, just putting your fork to your mouth, it's going to get easier. It's going to get easier and stuff. It's definitely a, definitely a lot more than that. Um, when it comes to eating disorders, it's, it's honestly, a lot of it's not about the food. It's what the food brings up and yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's still very misunderstood, but it's, yeah, the mechanical eating part is what we were told absolutely every single meal and eventually it did get easier. Um, and 
part of it was being forced certain foods that I would not have allowed myself. Foods that you would not have allowed, allowed yourself to eat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, as I got deeper and deeper into everything, the food selection got a lot more rigid in what was acceptable and what wasn't. Yeah. So I'm curious. So you have techniques and some strategies and mindset that helped you kind of find your recovery and find your path. Has it, obviously you've had some friends in the programs. Is it different for everyone? Like, have you found that like certain people, certain techniques work for each individual? Like, or is it a very much like one size fit all? It's all. Depending on which treatment I've looked at um, or facility, there's typically a really fixed model of this is what you do. This is how this works. And this is going to get easier over time. Um, there is some people that do click with certain psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, and a lot of the time that if you don't, you're basically stuck with them in an unhealthy relationship, say with a dietitian that you don't trust. And we had talked about good food and bad food earlier where a common, common phrase is all foods fit. Um, and it's like, okay, just, just go eat a burger or something like that. But a good food for one person, uh, can be a bad food for another person. Um, and so at the end of the day, we were actually talking about this as a a calorie is actually one calorie. It does its job, but what it's paired with is a lot different and reacts in the body. So like, so different. And also within the mind of someone that has eating problems is a food that would be deemed acceptable and good and everything by society standards could be a food that someone would look at as this is what say I would use to binge on, or this is, this is a food that is going to bring up so much emotions and so many memories. So it's, it's what's good could be good or bad in just the different context of what we were looking at there. Yeah. I think that's super important, important to point out because yeah, it's so often so black and white and be like, Oh, this is a hamburger, French fries. Those are bad, obviously. But I guess in the context of someone in eating disorder recovery, French fries might be saving their life. And to another person like, Oh, a salad is a healthy choice. But to someone in eating disorder recovery, no, maybe they need the more energy dense, like the sweet potato. So it's, I, I like that. It's like, it's not one size fits all. It's not so black and white, it has to be individualized and it can kind of be a bad thing when you're so, when you're just putting your foods into these different categories. Yeah, exactly. And that that's, that was one of the things that was interesting about the different programs is they had your proteins, your carbs, your, your dairies, and then desserts. Um, and there would be one to two things within that. That's all that would fit too. So it, it almost reinforced a certain structure to live by with only one or two foods that fit into what a protein was. Um, and a lot of the time there wasn't a plant-based or acceptable um, vegetarian option that would meet the protein or the grain requirements of what they thought was necessary for nutrition and actually being able to heal a body. Yeah, I find it so interesting because, again, just from my own and this is what I, how I find like our experiences differ here is because for you, vegetarianism was a way to, as you said, socially restrict food even more. And it almost became this kind of dangerous, dangerous path to follow. But 
in my own experience, um, I was restricting, I was restricting calories. And when I found um, veganism and plant-based foods, it almost had the opposite effect on me because I was able to be like, okay, I identify as a vegan. And it actually allowed me to simplify my food choices. And again, coming back to the good and bad foods, I very rigidly was like, okay, all animal products are bad foods, but if it's vegan, it's a good food and I can eat it. So kind of in a way, it gave me permission to eat some of these almost um, like higher calorie foods because they were vegan, which I found very interesting. And it wasn't the case for you. So again, I'm just like contrasting our experiences. So for me, adopting veganism actually kind of helped pull me out of my disordered eating patterns because I was like, oh, this is a plant-based cheesecake, but because it's plant-based, I can have it. Whereas if it had been a normal cheesecake, no way. And I would have been stewing over that choice for like food anxiety for hours. So it's, I don't know, I find it fascinating. And again, it just shows how much we still have to learn about this. Yeah. It's, it's like you said, it's, and I like, we've actually like, we've had quite a bit of, quite a bit of discussions about this. And it's, it's interesting how going into something with the intentions of it being good, um, just led me on a completely different path than you and what I would expose myself to. It's, I guess it's like in research going into it with a hypothesis that you want to prove it. You're going to, you're going to do as much as you can to actually make these ideas work for you and seem acceptable. So just the different paths that influence social media and what you expose yourself to can definitely alter the way you think too and and create your self narrative of what you're telling yourself. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Okay. So getting back to um, some of the strategies that helped you. Um, uh, we have, we, we wrote up a little outline here, but um, of important things to touch on. But I want to talk about, for you, you keep coming back to meaning and identity. And I'd love to just ask you, how has, um, I guess, reimagining or finding a true meaning in life or a new purpose helped you in your recovery? So that was, that's basically what helped me um, progress through different stages of um, recovery is at that point, I, I wasn't going to school. I basically didn't feel like I had friends. I didn't have any sort of exercise goals or any sort of abilities to engage in any of that. So I started looking at different degrees and schools and started looking at just upgrading. And so I found actually different purposes in life by um, starting to attend uh, Mount Royal University and doing a major in physical literacy. And so that really gave me a purpose and a direction of what I wanted to do. And as well as I started looking at obstacle course racing. Um, yeah. And so that really got me interested in finding something that I could go towards, gave me a purpose and something. It was a goal outside of just fixating on mental health and eating and stuff like that. So instead of completely being enticed by eat this, eat this, eat this, I could look at seeing a future outside of all of this, this world of say an eating disorder recovery. So it was, it was giving another, another place that I could channel my thoughts. So important. And again, I, yeah, it just speaks to, you need a meaning in life. You need something greater than yourself to work towards. Uh, just follow-up question to that. Can you tell everyone what physical literacy is? <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> so physical literacy, uh, in a basic basic rundown, is helping people um, get back to 
understanding the importance of movement and going back to uh, the fundamental movement skills such as running, jumping, skipping, hopping. And I go back and I look at my physical education <laughs> um, when I was growing up and I, w- I was just told to run um, and I absolutely hated it because I didn't know how. I wasn't taught how. And so running and doing things like that is often lost as we progress through ages because either we don't know how to do it or we just don't like it. And finding individual things that help someone engage in physical activity throughout the day and throughout their lives is a big priority and a big, actually part of my identity is what I want to help people with is just finding a different thing that they like. It doesn't have to be going to the gym or these high intensity interval classes where they come out just absolutely drenched and hating it. It's even simple movements such as like walking. Um, And yeah, so it's physical literacy is just how to incorporate movement and developing confidence and competence in these these skills that are necessary to move through life successfully. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a life skill that needs to be taught in school, I believe, just as um, and just as strongly emphasized as our mathematics and our, our English. So I'd like to touch on just one more thing again. So elective convulsion therapy, I believe it's called. So ECT for short. Um, can you just briefly talk? I know there's not much known about it yet, but can you just talk um, for someone who doesn't know about it or doesn't know it's an option, um, explain maybe what it is briefly and how it has helped you? Yeah, no, it's, it's I could be a spokesperson for ECT is how much it's affected me in my life and what it's given me. Um, so electroconvulsive therapy is done by, uh, it's done by a trained professional, usually a psychiatrist and you're put under. So what they do is they, um, they induce a, uh, electric seizure within the brain and it helps with rewiring. Um, there's so much research, but a lot of unknown uh, ideas of why it actually works. Uh, but it was offered to me as I, I had worked through the whole book of different medications to try uh, combinations. And the one day I just said, oh, I wish I could just shock my brain to get rid of all these. And my doctor was like, hey, we, we can actually do that. And so I, I actually like ECT has given me so much more freedom in life. Uh, it gives me like the momentary breaks where I can look at different like OCD and structured behaviors and start to break a little bit of those pathways that have been reinforced over time for so long. And it's not a very well-funded program in Alberta um, as well. And the people that need it, uh, there's long wait lists. There's only a few locations that do it and doctors. So once again, it, it goes back to the mental health um, treatments and certain areas and just how under basically a lack of knowledge, a lack of doctors, lack of funding, um, and lack of facilities too. So ECT has definitely been life-changing. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Where I've been fascinated hearing about it from you because we had a couple lectures where they mentioned it in, um, our psychiatry unit in medical school. And we're taught that it can be a very effective treatment for depression. And it's, I'm just excited for the future and excited to, um, as we learn more. And as you say, as it's more accessible to people, because I just, I've seen the change in you and it's, it's crazy. We don't understand how it works, but it works. And so I just wanted to bring that up here because perhaps there's someone out there who feels like they've tried everything and, Maybe they haven't tried this yet, and maybe it's um, worth asking your doctor about. Yeah, and it, 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 is, it is invasive, and it is scary. 
Um, and but it it's not as scary as it's it looks. Or if you Google it or YouTube, like <laughs> the, the videos are a little bit scary. Don't but Google it. <laughs> no, yeah, no. So so it's it's very very helpful, and I I would yeah I I love it. Like it's it's given me. It does treat the underlying depression of things, but at the root, depression seemed to be what got me on this trajectory of relying so heavily and a lack of self-control and food and my diet and exercise was something I could control. So treating the underlying depression is, is kind of going to the roots of things. Yeah. And um, so to this day, you still, what are you doing it about like once a month? Yeah. Um, so I'm on maintenance right now, which is once a month. Um, and from there, it can vary just following up with the uh, psychiatrist that's administering it. Um, and just once again, <laughs> remaining honest and open with a support team and the professionals is, is something I can't emphasize enough. And it can be hard because sometimes it seems like a punishment if you are just because further restrictions or um, ideas are possibly kind of forced upon you. But it's it's what gets you through is you, you can't really go around it. You just you have to go through it. And it's so scary and it takes a long time. But hopefully being on the other side of this is in having a purpose and goals outside of the external um, and actually learning a little bit more about myself. It's, it's a journey and it's something I'm actually looking a lot more into of how I can, how I can do this for myself now, not for other people. Thank you. Thank you. That's such good advice. And I hope, um, people out there hearing this, it helps them too. Um, so we've, <laughs> we've mentioned it a couple times. We haven't talked about it yet. Let's talk about obstacle course racing. So how did you get into the sport and why do you love it so much? So, I, I love the idea of it's basically like an acceptable way for adults to be playing in dirt and climbing over things. <laughs> um, because if you do it at parks, um, you do get weird looks uh, by different people and you have to typically fight for the swings and monkey bars with little people. Um, <laughs> so yeah, just obstacle course racing, such as like the X warrior, um, Spartan racing, um, and then the world championships. Um, yeah, it's, it was just a really fun way of me looking at different, training rather than just the major compound lifts and just doing such like a bodybuilder split kind of thing of training. It was, it was a way of looking at basically just a fun way that I can learn how to play outside as basically just a big kid and reinforcing physical literacy, um, in my own life. Yeah. So in a way it almost made like exercise fun again versus this something you used to literally punish yourself with. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, at the beginning, it initially was kind of a way of a more or less accepting self-masticating behavior of say like, Oh, you do get like, I don't know, you do get scrapes and stuff like that. But eventually it became a really important role in my life as it also gave me goals and directions, um, ideas of different training modalities and just different research that I could do. Yeah. So a lot of people like there's a lot of people that have done Spartan races. I've done a Spartan race once in my life. I got all muddy. It was it's okay. Um, I didn't take to it like you did, but, um, I'd like, you actually competed for Canada at, I think, was it the Spartan world championships, um, in London and in Ontario, you've competed for Canada twice now. Yeah. So I was offered Spartan, um, pro team options, um, as well as I went to, uh, the United Kingdom and also 
uh, Blue Mountains in Ontario and did the World Championship uh, obstacle course racing. Um, so that was that was a really big goal for a really long time. And so how do you qualify for that? Uh, so at certain qualifying races, uh, Spartan races count, uh, you have to be, say, in an open heat, you have to be within the top uh, three people that finish or um, within, I think, the top 10 of the Spartan pro team. Yeah, so it's it's intense. And if anyone hasn't been to one of these races, like there's people that come out there just to like have fun with their friends and make it through the course. And then there's people that come out to win and they're phenomenal athletes. That That's also a really big thing of what I love about obstacle course racing is the diversity within the people. Um, you see absolutely all sorts of people. Um, and I love it. I see people having fun, taking pictures, but like you also said, a lot of like, there's some pretty serious athletes and there's quite a few that are actually world renowned just because of their, it's the unique training that goes into this. Yeah. You kind of need a little bit of everything. And I'd like to ask a little bit more about your training. Um, because exercise was such a big part in contributing to, um, I guess you're where you found yourself with your eating disorder. Um, how were you able to train for the world championships without falling back into some of your old um, behaviors and patterns? Like, did you set boundaries for yourself or how, how did you make sure you were eating enough? Like what was, what was going on there? So it was going back to this idea of mechanical eating and it was more or less that I was more accepting of having a vegetarian life um, and that I could control it. Um, so there was still the, there's still the aspect of control and tying my identity to outside forces, but it was more or less going in a direction that I could see an actual future rather than just landing back in the hospital. So just different training, uh, like grip behavior or grip control, grip strength, um, different ways of doing pull-ups. Uh, so a lot of calisthenics, um, and then you do have to have like uh, some power and stuff. So looking at some. Uh, different types of hang cleans, uh, cleans and jerks. Um, and then there, there's obviously it's <laughs> the mental aspect that goes into it is, is pretty challenging too. Um, just keeping yourself motivated and it's a really fine line, uh, especially for someone who does over exercise and it can get out of control really quick. Um, writing down my training uh, was really, really important and being honest with it. Um, in the past, I would just be like, oh, I I missed uh, this run or I didn't put it in there and you'd be like, oh, okay, well I can make up for that. But really writing it down and seeing and having a tangible idea of what you're doing in a week um, was, was a game changer. So writing it down and it was a cool opportunity for me to learn how to program differently rather than just follow what I was seeing on YouTube or these influencers. Yeah. And you had some pretty like unique workouts too. Like I remember um, I think like you've told me you walked a lot or you would like run to the gym, do your workout, run home. Like you really were very good at fitting exercise and physical activity into your day. It wasn't just like your workout. It's almost like your entire day was part of your workout. Yeah. That, that helped me create a really, really good structure for a long time, um, where I felt okay in my own skin for, which took a long time. But yeah, like running to the gym um, was a good way for me to get there. It was a way for me to warm up. Uh, well, some days in Canada here, it's kind of <laughs> cold. But um, yeah, no, like walking, it seems like such an underrated thing. But walking around with a backpack or going on a hike, 
um, it can be referred to as rucking. Um, but doing that is, it's so underrated, but it, it helps so much. Like, even if like you go somewhere, just put a laptop and not necessarily putting weights or anything and getting out of control like that, but just like things that would be kind of daily behaviors and just, just doing it with a little bit more intention of being physically active. Yeah, that's super cool. And I think that's um, advice like anyone out there, whether you're an obstacle course racer or not, is just like almost, I think there's a video, it's like called Make Your Day Harder. Yeah, yeah, it's shown in like every like um, (laughs) Kinesin um, lecture, I think. But um, yeah, make your day harder. So park a little farther away, get those extra steps in, like carry your groceries, go up the flight of stairs and just like build the physical activity into your day. Yeah, that's a big part part of physical literacy. And and it's it's kind of hard because like they do say like make your day hard, but it's it's honestly it's it gets easier too the more you do it and it becomes more natural. So say instead of going and sit, sitting in a drive-thru for 10 minutes, um, you can walk in and get, say, a coffee at Starbucks or something and walk out and see the people that have not moved. So it's 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 seeing those kind of things. It's like, okay, you got up, you moved, you got in there, and you're very successful too. So it's it's a little wins in the day. Yeah. Little wins. I like that. So, okay. I'm curious, what's your favorite, um, I guess, obstacle at, um, like a Spartan race or something like that? Like, do you have a favorite? Basically any type of the monkey bars. Um, I (laughs) have naturally come to that, I guess. Um, I, I really enjoy just being able to swing. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. Do you have a least favorite obstacle? Probably like at a Spartan race, it would be a spear throw. Um, That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I cannot do the spear throw. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That or anything that involves heavy moving things within a mud pit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. So coming back to the world championships, I'm just like, I would think this would be an incredible experience. Like um, what races did you compete in there? Like how long was the distance? And I guess just talk about, can you talk about your entire experience there and what it was like? So it it was interesting going into it because I'm a very structured and I get comfortable in one spot. So going across the world for the England ones, it was a brand new environment, new culture, everything. So it's a really big culture shock. But at that time, I was just so excited to be able to have this opportunity. So I competed in a sprint competition, um, say a Friday. And then on the Saturday, I competed in the longer distance one. So it was about 15K, that one. Yeah. Um, and how was, did it feel like different? Were you nervous for it all at all? Like, um, were you happy with what you achieved? Given kind of everything that was going on and where I had been, I was, I was very happy with where I was and what I achieved. Um, and it kind of comes back to that identity thing is after that was done, I didn't really know who I was again because I didn't have this goal. So I really relied on going back to my physical literacy. So it's really important to have more than one thing tied to your identity. Yeah. So, so how I'm understanding. So it's almost like you work toward this goal. And then I think like once it was like, what, what next was that if I'm understanding, right? Yeah, for sure. And, and it was something that I've, I really looked at with different types of goal setting is the types of goals that I am working on getting away from setting is these goals that don't have a definitive end. So it's something that I see, say I do this race, I get a certain time. It's not good enough. So I keep going this and this and this, and it's, it's kind of like an illusion. If you're wandering around in the desert and you see water or something in the, in the 
distance, you, you keep going towards it and you keep going and you keep going, but you never get there. So you, you never really get the full satisfaction or, or what you could from actually like seeing any sort of like actual accomplishment, what you have done. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think like we're in such a goal oriented society and it's always like, okay, accomplish this, get to the next, accomplish that, get to the next. And it's like, when are you actually truly happy with like where you're at, I guess. It, it can be a dangerous game. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's a lot of, once again, going back to social media is if you're not setting these specific type of goals or with this, you're a failure or you haven't done this, but even doing things like going out for a 10-minute walk, you're still succeeding. You're still doing a goal. You're bettering yourself, which is, it's it's the best way, in my opinion, to start to have a purpose is just to have these little wins throughout the day um, and it, it does get easier and eventually you find a way to make it your own. Yeah. So I guess like from that whole experience, like what was a big takeaway? Like what was the major thing you learned, whether about yourself or, um, from competing at the world championships, if there's anything that stands out? What kind of stands out is that at the beginning of say doing things, I wasn't doing it for myself. I was doing it just for basically the ideas of like people and the satisfaction I was getting from social media. Um, but I really learned that your intention behind everything is essential. So you can go through all the motions and you can do and get up to certain, like say weights for lifting or certain things for your day, uh, if it comes to physical activity. But if, if you don't have the intention behind it, you're not really gaining anything for yourself. It's just going through the motions. So really looking at and questioning what the intention is behind things. And that also did play a lot into mental health and going into certain drives for behaviors and stuff and looking at what the intention of certain behaviors was and where it would lead you. And just just questioning that. And if something did happen, just having that moment where you look at your intention. Yeah, I actually love that you brought that up. I find it even in my own life, I'm, I try to be conscious about that now. And I've, I've caught myself many times, like not so much now, but previously I've just like, I felt like I need to go for a run. I need to go for a run. And then being like, okay, why, what's the intention behind my run? Am I running because I just need, could be because I feel like I need to burn calories or am I running because I actually with the intention of a specific goal for my workout or am I running because I feel like I just, I should, it's the right thing to do. Like there's so many, it's like, why am I going up for a run? And if I felt like my intention wasn't a good one, I, some, not, not all the time, I can't admit, but sometimes I, I wouldn't do the run and I'd be like, okay, actually, no, my health would benefit better from um, maybe a different type of exercise or perhaps no exercise at all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, the the narrative that we can tell ourselves, and it, it seems so, <laughs> yeah. so right, but at the time, it can be so wrong. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so I'm curious. Um, I guess if someone out there is listening um, and they want to start obstacle course racing, any advice for them? Uh, it also, like, it also depends, one, on your level of fitness, two, how you want to do it. Um, it's, it's really cool. Um, I really enjoy kettlebells. Um, it is such a fun and unique way of training. Not a lot of gyms have uh, a large supply of them, um, but they're super versatile. So looking online at just different workouts that are actually, actually like really cool. Um, so that helps drive a lot of power, a lot of grip strength. Um, I also mentioned going to parks, um, just your local neighborhoods, um, climbing around, um, just stuff like that. Um, and 
a lot, well, going back to doing running and stuff like that, doing it within within what you're capable of and not going to the absolute extreme. So it's it's the progressive overload principles of weight training where you, you start start with a little bit and you work your way up because if you just kind of go into it, you might just end up hating it. And certain modalities such as like obstacle course racing um, aren't for everyone. So if, if you think you'll like it, um, you don't have to like it if you go into it. Um, so not going into it with the, the idea that, that you have to do this, you have to like it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's not for everyone, but, um, different, um, I really enjoy cable exercises. Um, and so twisting, uh, so looking at different core and calisthenics too, just becoming more aware of your muscle, uh, patterns and how your, how your body, uh, can just move and being comfortable with how you react within an environment. Yeah. And like I say, there's so many different, I think that's one thing I really respect about obstacle course racing is there's, you need to have skills in so many areas. You can't just be a great runner if you have no like upper body strength and, or no agility. And it's, it's very dynamic, lots of fun training. So yeah. Um, I'd love to kind of just as we're wrapping up here, it's crazy. We've been talking for over an hour now, but coming back to, I guess, um, eating disorder recovery and relapse, um, your personal journey has had a few ups and downs and I'm curious, do you consider relapse a normal part of recovery? I personally, I've required and I've learned a lot from different, not even full relapses, but the recovery model, it, it actually has a part of relapse in it, which is often, often overlooked because it can seem very scary. And that if this happens, it's, it's such a bad thing. It's, it's looking at recovery and relapses is like, instead of being full relapses, it can just be like a little setback. Um, it's what happens and what you do with those setbacks. And so if things are going to completely fall apart, it's there, there's, there might be some step progressions into it, but it is definitely, I would say, part of recovery. Unfortunately, there's going to be good days, bad days, um, good foods, bad food, stuff you are comfortable with and stuff you're not comfortable with. I, I still have this to this day. Um, and it's it's also that's one way of in early stages of recovery, how I am able to remain constant within a sort of structure is by having these things that I know I'm not 100 100% safe with uh, if they're going to use those terms, um, and it's not exposing myself to those before I feel that I can actually do this in a safe environment. It's it's just taking those little steps up that ladder instead of coming out and going from one completely extreme to the other. It's taking these and becoming more stable, and just knowing your way and getting comfortable at where you're at in this moment. Yeah, I'm just question just came to me right now, but I'm wondering if you could go back in time, would you, do you, would you take away your entire experience with your eating disorder or do you think it has made you a better person coming out the other side? It's, it's weird because for a long time, it really, I felt like it was my identity and going through a recovery is, is really scary because it feels like your best friend and who you are is being taken away. Um, so having something challenge your internal identity, such as that, going back to this whole identity thing, um, it's, I would say it's definitely helped me get on this path of where I can appreciate where 
physical literacy and movement and psychology can get people in life. And I've met some amazing people. Um, I've had some experiences which have definitely altered my opinions of different people within industries. Um, but I have, I've met some amazing professionals. Um, and it's got me to a place where I, I see where there's gaps in our, say, healthcare or ideas where you can pair mental health treatment and physical activity um, together instead of being completely separate. And in a eating disorder recovery program, exercise is completely prohibited. And where physical activity is, it's so beneficial to your mental health. And there's a plethora of studies out there and it's shown as being a very efficacious way of challenging depression and anxiety and starting to suppress those. So there's a time and a place where you have to be medically stable, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how everything just kind of has worked out so far and got me to this place where I really want to start helping people through using physical activity as a way of helping to even regulate uh, mental health struggles. It's, I really hope that you're not the only one that's interested in pursuing um, this because I feel like there's so much potential in it. And I know like you're still in your studies right now and you're still learning, but hopefully that you can actually help some people like going through what you've gone through. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting. Um, so I guess, yeah, we'll see kind of where I go from here. I guess in general, like, how are you doing these days? Like, um, how do you, in general, how do you think about food now? I know we already touched on a little bit about you need to be careful about labeling things as good or bad, but um, how is your relationship with food today? It's definitely gotten a lot better. Um, I support myself with amazing supports and um, like you being one of them. And I see you as such, such an inspiration <laughs> just for just everything you've been able to do and everything I've learned from you. Um, we learn from each other. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do live, uh, I would say, in a vegetarian category. Um, yeah, it's just what I feel comfortable with. And I'm. it's not my identity, which I don't think is like, I know friends of mine and stuff like that. They, they are the paleo people or the carnivores or the, the ketos or... Or the hardcore vegans. Yes. <laughs> can um, be just as bad. Exactly. But it's it's like we've gone back and touched on is what I went into with the intention of and how it differed in our journeys. Um, but yeah, so I, I long, long story short, I, I would say I, I'm a vegetarian right now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad things are going good. Glad you eat plant predominant. I can support that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so I guess as just, we close out, like what advice would you have for anyone that might be going through an eating disorder or they have some form of disordered eating or they're scared that they're starting to fall down that path? Is there anything that you'd say to someone listening? Uh, well, there's definitely some things, um, just in general, I would say you don't ever have to be sick enough to get treatment. Uh, you don't have to prove to anyone that you don't deserve treatment because you're not at a place where you're so medically compromised and it's not a competition between different people um, to see who can eat less or who can do certain things or see more certain things or only restrict themselves. Like You don't have to compete with other people in that category. If there is a level of disordered eating, there's a lot of resources online. Um, in Calgary here, there's a new facility, the Silver Linings Program. 
And both at the Children's Hospital and Foothills Hospital, they have a program. Um, as well as Edmonton, um, they have a very good program. I would definitely recommend. And so, yeah, just in general, too, don't be afraid to reach out. It It's not really well understood. And even someone that has this is still so confusing. And I don't understand a lot of the logic and ideas that go behind it, but you don't have to understand it to get help. And yeah. Yeah, no, so important. Um, okay, and the opposite, the other end of the spectrum. So if someone's listening who perhaps is a family member or a friend of someone who they think is visibly struggling. Um, sometimes people don't really know what to say or how to act. And sometimes people are, are scared of doing the wrong thing. So they might not do nothing at all. And alternatively, other people are trying to do too much and they say the wrong things, do the wrong things. So I thought it would be useful if we could just kind of go through some like do's and don'ts to say to someone who might be struggling with an eating disorder. So can we just start out with like things not to say? Yeah, it- it's things you want to say, but can be taken a lot differently. Like, oh, just just eat or just just go have a burger is a really common one, actually. Um, and it's just food. Um, or this, this seems like something you'd want to say, but you look healthy. You look really good. Um, that can be interpreted as someone being like, oh, I've gained all this weight. And just, yeah, it can bring up a lot. Um, so things that seem very, very harmless can be taken in a completely different way. So I guess just taking the care to try and as much as you can try and understand what they might be going through and don't, don't simplify it. I think that was like, for me, it's just like, don't, don't tell me what to eat. Don't tell me it's okay to eat this. You don't know what's okay and what's not. So I guess just adding on to that. So those are things not to say. So what are things like not to do? So some really big behaviors that um, I've seen and heard are people trying to discreetly add, say, throw copious amounts of different oils or a lot of other things that that would just add a lot of calories, but going into it with the intention of just trying to sneak in calories um, and don't lie to people. Um, I talked about being a good support and not talking at them, talking to them. Um, and you don't have to understand where their mind is, but at the time they're a person, they're not a diagnosis, they're, they're a person. And just to treat them that way um, and another thing is, is don't restrict completely physical activity. Um, if they are in a medically compromised situation, that definitely has to be prescribed and understood at certain levels. It is acceptable because it can really be a great outlet for, for mental health. And it doesn't have to be getting people right back into a high intensity class or something like that, which might, someone might want to do right away, but just, just allowing little movement can can allow just a lot, get out of different environments. And yeah, so having an understanding of what physical activity is appropriate at the time. Okay. And on the other side of things, um, let's end on a positive note here. So how about things that a family member or friend should do? So things that are good to say or things that are good to do? So some things that have been really positive is like, oh, you seem so much happier, like your smile's back. Um, so things that are more character attributes are not just your physical, um, cause they can just be taken a lot differently. Um, and if people are going to say something that in my experience, that's been the best thing to do. Um, don't look as people say like you people or, 
um, categorize them as definitely like a mental illness. Look at them as a person. Um, it's, it's really important not to take their identity away as putting them in this category of someone with, with a mental illness is because it might feel that they need to remain sick to keep this as their identity. Um, so just have patience. It's, it's not a linear process. There's slips, there's bumps and things are going to happen, but really look at the little successes. So say someone's really struggling, if, they're, if they have a, like a little bit of a breakfast one day, it wouldn't be up to say your standards or what you think would be acceptable, but, but show them that it is like a big deal. And it's, 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 yeah, it's still, once again, misunderstood is how something is eating breakfast can be some big task, but it, it's the little successes and the little wins that compound over time into what's going to be a successful recovery or a different outlook and approach it a more healthier lifestyle and a healthier relationship with food. Yeah. I'll just, I'm just going to share uh, one like anecdotal story for myself. Just um, my mom still doesn't understand it to this day, but for some reason I could not, if I had like, say I had walnuts with my breakfast or a couple walnuts or something for the life of me, I would not eat peanut butter for the rest of like, certain things just don't go. And it, it doesn't make sense to this day. It doesn't make sense, but I could not combine those things in the same day. And there, I had like countless little examples like that. My mom, like my family, like could not understand, but one day I actually ate them in the same day. And that was huge. And that was a huge breakthrough for me yet (laughs) to someone on the outside. That's just ridiculous. So I just wanted to share, like, you don't know what people are going through and just recognizing what is big to them is, is huge and celebrating it with them is big. Yeah, exactly. Like, another thing is I, I, if I eat a mango, I get so like, <laughs> I feel guilty, but I also know that that seems a little bit kind of contradicting or t- in a way of what can be deemed as healthy. Um, but that's also something that I wouldn't eat for a long time. And I actually really enjoy mangoes. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's strange how the mind works, and it's strange what you just like what's okay and what's not, and these rules you make for yourself to live within to um, perceive you have some sort of control. I don't know, it's crazy, but um, this has been so good, and I, there's been a lot of advice here. But I guess just as we close out, what is it could be anything, but what is one thing you would like people listening to take away from this conversation? One is that you don't I, you don't have to identify as being someone that's sick. Um, identity is a really big thing in where I feel direction can go in life. And so surrounding yourself with good people that support you in your goals, rather than just looking at you as someone that needs help. Um, Your identity isn't someone that needs help. Your identity is what you can make it. Yeah. So important. Um, all right. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for being here. So you get, you give great advice. If someone's listening and they'd like to reach out, connect with you, um, kind of follow your journey, see what you're up to, um, where can they find you? Uh, well, it's once again been an honor to be here with one of my closest friends and just share a little bit of my story. Um, the easiest place to reach me is uh, on Instagram. Uh, so my Instagram handle is at thatchman19. Um, yeah, if you send me a message or anything, I'd love to talk. If you have someone in your life that that you don't know how to interact with or talk with, um, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, yeah, and we can always have a conversation. I'm happy to help. Amazing. Um, I'll definitely uh, link to his Instagram handle in the show notes below. So you can just like scroll down and click and yeah, reach out. And um, 
yeah, this has been incredible. Thank you so much, Corey. Um, I'm sure there's many people out there that are going to get a lot out of this conversation. Thank you very much, Cassie. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.